So if you like stories from an acute care rehabilitation speech pathologist, I have some great stories for you tonight with Brett and Michelle both joining me, both acute care speech language pathologists, and they have amazing stories to share with us tonight. They are based in a larger acute care hospital in Texas, and they share with us all sorts of things that are happening during their day with their complex medically fragile patients to those who survive and those who don't survive. So get ready for a great podcast. Hello and welcome to the Missing Link for the SLPs podcast. I am so glad you are here. Today's episode is part of the Medical SLP series where we talk to some amazing speech paths who work in a variety of medical settings, all the way from intensive care through to home care and everything else in between and beyond. You're going to hear some incredible medical SLP stories and lots of advice from these passionate medical SLPs. This really is just all about fun and storytelling. And even if mics and videos don't work, it's all just fun because we're talking about something that we love. So today we are welcoming Brett and Michelle to our episode of the Missing Link for Fresh SLPs podcast. And we're excited you two are here. I don't think we've had two speech pathologists from the rehabilitation units before. So welcome. We're excited. This is uh this is our first kind of podcast as well. So we've been slowly preparing and psyching ourselves up to, you know, quote unquote, you know, get famous. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, no, we're excited I mean, to pray and talk about what we do and, you know, answer any questions you guys have or your students have. That's what this podcast is all about. And it started because students, because of COVID, weren't able to go into some of these settings and really see what was going on in shadow. So when I put that call out on MedSLP, um, a number of you guys responded back. And I'm so excited you two responded and said, hey, we'd love to share our setting with you. Tell us a little bit about who you are and where you work. Um, want to go first? Sure. So uh, my name is Michelle Lytle, and I graduated from the University of Texas at Dallas in 2011, and then I went to go on and do my CFY at the UT Medical Branch in Galveston. Um, it's a big level one trauma hospital, and I had the the greatest time. It was very hard, but it was definitely um, what I needed to feel prepared to stay in the medical field. Um, after I finished, it's a rotating position, and so I was looking for another acute care position, and I ended up finding actually where I am today, um, a position at Baylor Scott & White in Irving, and so I've been here since 2012 and been kind of the lead head SLP for um, pretty much that entire time. And I recently moved up into an acute care therapy supervisor position in 2018. And so I'm splitting my work between um, still seeing patients and doing acute care what I love, but also now kind of moving towards more of a leadership management side. So you started in the medical setting, you moved around in that medical setting laterally, and now you're kind of moving up horizontally into supervision and everything like that, yes? Yes. That's great. It shows students that, um, our listeners, that they have this ability to move within this, your system. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And Brett. Uh, and so I, my name is Brett. Schneider. I uh, I went to Missouri State University. Um, that is in Springfield, Missouri. Most people don't really know where that's at. Uh, but I ended up throughout grad school knew from almost day one that I wanted to do medical, and that was all I wanted to do was medical, uh, primarily acute care was my was my ultimate goal. Um, 
I did my externship at an acute care hospital that was actually about five miles down the road from my university. And from my um, externship, I was hired on, uh, unfortunately, to, uh, fortunately hired on to um, start a part-time job there in their acute care setting. They only had a part-time job available. So as I wanted to expand on my knowledge and learn more about the acute care side of you know speech pathology, I also joined in on a PRN job at the other big hospital down the street um, and worked there two days a week. So I filled my my weeks up with uh, you know a full schedule. I just rotated from two different hospitals, both acute cares, um, both big hospitals. You know, probably around 500 to 800 beds, um, trauma, you know, we saw everything. It was an incredible learning experience. I had some of the greatest speech therapists um, that a CFY could ask for to learn under and kind of develop the skills necessary to branch out um, more independently in the future. Uh, so a shout out to the Mercy Hospital speech therapist <laughs> and also Cox Hospital. Um, and then... After my CFY, I knew I wanted to branch out of Missouri primarily. Um, I, you know, just wanted to see other stuff. And so as a, you know, wanting to get into the medical field, it's, you know, you have to open your eyes up and you have to open your, um, your ability to change locations for mm -hmm. this, for this setting, the setting you want. Mm -hmm. So I applied to several jobs throughout, you know, the country. And I uh, ended up, you know, landing this job and sweeping these ladies off their feet. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, so that's 2019. I ended up moving down to Irving, which if people don't know, Irving's about 20 minutes outside of Dallas. Um, and I ended up moving to uh, Texas and started this job. And, you know, it's a different change of pace, but uh, I you know, wouldn't change it for the world. And Michelle's been a great mentor for me. And our big boss is also a speech pathologist as well. So we are surrounded by, you know, a lot of helpful hands and it's a great learning environment. How many are on your team there? So it's actually, so we have two full times. So um, myself and Michelle and Michelle's technically counted as a half like one and a half um, because of the fact that she is doing her supervisor role on top of that. But we also have, what is it, six? Six to seven PRNs that come and help us throughout the week as needed. Yeah. I can think of a whole number of questions to ask each one of you. I would love to pick your brain a little bit, Michelle, about um, – more of the administrative type things, like what do you look for when people interview for a med SLP position and particularly any words of advice for the clinical fellow who might be moving in and really wanting that med SLP position or somebody transitioning in from a school system? Sure. So um, having been here this long and transitioning into more of this leadership opportunity, um, you know, we we really look for those who have experience or have kind of pushed themselves to get experience with modified bearing fall studies, um, but also with fees. And even if that's, you know, taking kind of the basic class to get your passes, it shows kind of your drive, your determination, your passion for this field, even if you may not have all the experience or be signed off as competent yet, um, you know, having taken basically those steps to kind of show those interests is always great. Um, you know, we have, currently we have a PRN that works for us who she started off in a school and she actually still works in a school, but she was able to get a job as a PRN in an LTAC. And, being able to have that experience with these medically complex patients and basically seeking that type of um, experience, but also a place where she was able to start getting 
her modified Bering Fall study um, experience. Um, that basically kind of helped land her this position. She was she had experience in an LTAC. She had experience at um, another. She had experience at a SNF, and she already was mostly competent in her modified Bering Fall study, and she was eager. We could tell that she loved medical SLP. Um, she, I really admire her because she can kind of do it all. She can, you know, she's still actually working in the schools, but she can come in and see, you know, adult patients, and she's eager to learn, and she's eager to ask questions. Another way that I've seen people kind of get their foot in the door is sometimes taking an outpatient adult placement, working with adult outpatients, especially if that adult clinic is part of a hospital system, a lot of times those outpatient SLPs are performing outpatient modified barium swallow studies. And so if they are able to come on, usually they can get training in that as well. And then that can help them transition into an acute care setting if that's what they want to do. So there's kind of all different ways to approach it, um, but, you know, we definitely look for those who are passionate, those who are looking for lear more learning opportunities, but those who kind of take the extra step to kind of get some experience under their belt. How does that show on a resume or a letter of intent? So usually we're looking at, especially if, let's say, um, we're looking for a CFY. We're looking at what were their placements as far as um, externships, internships, whatever you know you may call them in school. I just like Brett. I knew I wanted medical, and I kind of knew that if that was the route I wanted to go, that I needed some. I needed as much experience as I could get in grad school, and so I actually was able to get two full-time placements at two different hospitals over my last year in school. And that experience itself, knowing that I had worked an intern at a VA hospital and also at um, an acute care hospital in Dallas, helped me land the CFY that I had in Galveston. And I've told students a lot, you know, it's, it's one of those things that if medical is something that you're really thinking about and you're really wanting, that's kind of the first thing you should push for in your CF if you can, because it's really hard mm -hmm. to kind of go the other way. Like if I decided mm -hmm. one day that I wanted to go to a school, a school would probably hire me. I'd need some, I need a lot of training, but a school would probably hire me. Um, but it's really hard the other way to come mm -hmm. from the school um, and try to get your foot in the door. And so my advice is always, if that's what you're pushing for, you know, really talk to your um, advisors at school, your professors, see what opportunities there are. And um, yeah, just kind of do what you can to, and I, and I also say, you know, you, sometimes you have to move for the experience. That's kind of tough too. I know there's certain life situations where you may not be able to, but that was advice that somebody had given me to be willing to move for the job and the experience. Cause even if it's a year away from home, um, if you get that CFY, you're kind of invincible after that and can take your experience a lot of places. What is something that you would recommend not putting on a resume or something you've seen on a resume that you're just like, uh, uh, um, Hmm, that's a good question. I think it's it's really when you, especially kind of first coming into the field, if you are loading up your resume with kind of everything you've done, a lot of that is going to kind of be blurred over by who's looking at it because really they want to know what is relevant to this job that you're seeking. So it may be that you had all this experience in the school or um, – you know, at a pediatric outpatient clinic or something. But if you're really pushing for adult, you really want to highlight what you've done for adults, maybe what, you know, CEUs or, you know, courses that you've taken or the classes that kind of highlight um, those, that knowledge that you are have. 
in that preparation, possibly getting ready for this position. Yes, definitely. Any words of advice for the interview? Well, our goal is always to really be laid back as possible as we can. I mean, I think it may be, it's always different wherever you go interview, but um, I think just not put it as, as stressful as you may feel, just know that, you know, we're really trying to just fill you out as a person too. And it may be that you don't have, you know, all the experience in the world that you want, but sometimes we're also looking for just a great fit to our team. Mm-hmm. And I can say that, you know, when Brett interviewed, that was something that I noticed right away. Um, one, I noticed that he kind of pushed to get an interview, even though we were, we were, looking for people who had two years of experience or more. And he was like right under two years. Um, so the recruiter wasn't sending us his uh, resume. And so I bombarded them. Yes. With phone calls. <laughs> he just kept calling. I said, how did he get this number? And how, why well, he keeps calling. But I think, you know, I took that as such a good sign. Like here's somebody who's passionate and wants it. And he's like mm-hmm. willing to push to get it. And so, you know, we also look for somebody who's going to fit with our team you know, when you come into a, a new job and um, a new setting, the biggest thing is you may love the patient population you work with, but you also want to love who you're working with, too. Yes. And so not only are we interviewing you, but you're interviewing us. We want to know, you know, is this a good fit? Are we going to are we going to you know, be a, a good family? Yeah. yeah. I keep one day a week at my, my clinic because I absolutely love what we do. I love my patients and I love my colleagues. And yeah. I've recently moved and people are like, well, why didn't you apply at the hospital, you know, where you moved? And I'm like, no, no, right. because you just can't. If you find a good team and uh, in, in your case, a good supervisor, it's just, it just makes work so much better. And that's one of the reasons I haven't left. I got here and and I had put my foot in so many other doors and kind of saw so many other teams. And when I got here, I realized, wow, this is, this is different. And, and it would be crazy of me to think to leave this. So, And you've moved up, which is great. And Brett, you moved sideways. You kept, you know, some PRM positions and, and kind of, you know, teeter totter here or there. Tell us how you were so brave and so consistent with this is the job I want. Please meet with me and how you opened the doorways that you have. So, yeah. So going, you know, even in grad school, knowing that this is what I wanted, knowing my supervisors told me this is what I needed to do just because they saw how I was with kids and they're like, yeah, you probably shouldn't work with kids all the time. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it's what I wanted. And I honestly treated my externship as a prolonged interview. I, it was a big hospital. And so um, I, I treated it as the fact that I'm fighting to maybe get a job here if they have an opening because mm-hmm. they were a teaching hospital and they were, had a history of, you know, recruiting CFYs, mm-hmm. especially CFYs that had had their externships there, depending on, you know, what availability they had. So, I I worked and I worked hard and I did a lot of research and I did a lot of studying for this placement and I was always you know the first one with my hand up to get in there with new experiences and learning how to document correctly and all the things that I knew mattered to the team that I wanted to be a part of so I did that to the point I uh, I actually, I, I had some really good friends of mine from grad school that were doing the same thing. We had our externship together. We all wanted that one job. And unfortunately, they only had a one part-time job at that moment. And my really good friend and I, we were both, you know, fighting for that one part-time job. And both of us were just as qualified. There was no change. There was, you know, just a couple factors. And I ended up getting that job, and I'm I'm very very lucky for it because I know it's a very hard thing to do is to get the CFY acute care position, mm-hmm. and that and like Michelle said, it might not be conducive with you know your ultimate living situation because I didn't leaving grad school I I didn't really want to stay in Missouri I always wanted to branch out, 
but I got that opportunity and I wasn't going to leave it because I wanted to get the experience so I could branch out. So I stayed there and I stayed there for another year and I opened the door up to where I got another PRN position, luckily, in the same setting. And those two positions together, uh, I learned a lot. I worked a lot. I built, built up my resume as much as I could. I you know, took my fees course, my Langmore fees course in Boston. I, you know, did modified several times a week. Uh, I, um, I did everything that I thought would matter for a major hospital wanting to hire someone new. And so after, you know, my CFY was over with and I was, you know, more looking to branch out, um, then I, you know, again, I looked at a couple different hospitals in different areas of the country. I had a list of, you know, top five places I would potentially want to move to versus just moving wherever. And so I looked at those top five places, Dallas being one of them, because it is not a, it isn't terribly far from home, about a six and a half hour drive or so. Mm-hmm. And so my mom wouldn't freak out too much. Um, so I, you know, I looked at different jobs around here. There's a couple of hospitals I applied to, didn't get anything. Nothing came of it, and it was kind of a stagnant situation for a while. Then this job came available along with some other jobs, and I applied for them. And, you know, in movies and things, you always see that person who always calls and asks about their application, you know, gets their name recognized. So I always know, might as well try that. So I ended up actually calling the hospital. I asked to be transferred to their rehab department. And now this hospital has an inpatient rehab department and an acute care side um, department as well. So I got transferred to the acute care department, and I asked to speak to the rehab director, which is our big boss right now. Uh, And that's who I called, and I left messages on her phone, um, her work phone. And I did that a couple times without a response. I just, you know, basically said I just – I applied for this job. I just wanted to talk to you briefly through what the, you know, what the job entails, what you guys are looking for. Make sure you got my application. See if there's any questions you had about my application, and if there's anything I could do moving forward to, uh, you know, promote myself, that kind of thing. So I was actually at work, and our boss called me, and I, you know, talked him through it. And I first thing I was I told him was, you know, I know I don't fit the criteria of your application or your job listing which I think Michelle said was two years experience. And I just got done with my CFY. But I said, but this is what I've been doing. I've been doing modifieds five to 10 times a week. I've been working with these populations in this kind of setting. And these, you know, these, um, these two big hospital, major hospitals in this area of Missouri, where I'm from, I have, you know, experience with X, Y, and Z. I also have letters of recommendation from my current CFY supervisors and my other colleagues that I work with, if you were interested in those. And, you know, basically just promoting it myself as much as possible, which I hate doing. I hate talking about myself. Most people do. Uh, It's just something that's necessary if you want to put yourself above it. Yes. So I have an interview here. I, uh, I actually was on vacation when they interviewed me. I was, we did it through a Skype call, kind of like this. And I had my first interview with the ocean in the background. And so I was very relaxed. And I think that kind of helped a little bit. And then uh, after that, then we had a second interview. And I was kind of just patiently waiting in, you know, Missouri to see what the next step was. Because, you know, that was kind of the decider. If my, am I going to continue my job in the same spot? Or am I going to put in my, you know, dirty two weeks notice and move states and, you know, changed my whole life so that's kind of where it was and I was in a position unlucky enough that I could I had that opportunity I didn't have anything tying me to that spot that area I had the ability to move around which I know is not always the case with most people you know they might have to only get a job in this one city and that always makes it a lot lot harder to get those jobs but you know my main focus was just I needed the experience this is a coveted role, coveted position in my eyes. I need to put myself above there. I'm going to take the experience wherever I get it, and I'm going to work hard for it, and I'm going to you know, basically get to the point where 
in the future, if somebody says, can you do this? I'm going to have an answer for yes for every question, you know, so they have no reservations about my abilities, uh, regardless of how long I've been in the field. Um, that's kind of just my mentality about the whole, the whole situation and, you know, getting, getting into this environment and staying in this environment and moving laterally if needed. So you really looked for cultivated, focused on finding those opportunities where you wanted to go. And you also really, you were okay with rejection. You would rather put it out there, this is who I am, than not put it out there. I mean, if you kept calling and saying, you know, and just say, these are, these are my strengths. That's excellent. Most definitely. I mean, I, I had several rejections. I went through several hospitals I applied to. Most I didn't, I didn't call. I didn't, they, you know, they look at your, like Michelle said, the HR looks at your resume. They see you didn't meet their qualifications. So they don't even consider you a candidate. They don't even send you to the next level. So I, that's why I knew I needed to change something. I need to change my process. So that's, you know, that's kind of just what my mantra was the whole, the whole way I was going to put myself into every job application. Cause you just never know you're going to apply for it. You just never know um, if it's going to be something that they are, you know, agreeable to mend their terms a little bit. You always want to just put yourself out there. And if you get rejected, that's fine. That's going to happen. But, you know, rejection is part of the process. You got to keep going through it and pushing through it. It is. And it's, it's a very normal part of the process sometimes. Especially as a young SLP, it's, it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's going to happen. Sure. Nothing's wrong with you. <laughs> yeah. So, Michelle, question then for you. Um, people, students listening to this are new SLPs or transitioning SLPs, and they think, okay, now I'm going to call. What are some phone etiquette or email etiquette things that you could give them? I mean, how many times do they call? How many days do they wait? What is the point where they cross over into being annoying or where they don't call enough and they're not noticed? Well, I think if you know that you are in contact with the right person, um, you know, this is kind of a tough one because it's hard to know really when you send out your resume, now what's the next step? Who do I talk to? So, knowing that Brett kind of put himself out there to call the hospital, figure out who may be the rehab manager or the rehab director. Um, he was, he was calling the right person. I would say the intention is always for us to call back. Um, even when I've sent out, you know, emails for, to my grad school when we've had open positions just to help kind of get the word out there. You know, if somebody emails, most likely you should get a response back, whether that's yes or no. If you don't, I think it's still appropriate to email, you know, at least after a week or so. Um, If you still don't get a response, I think the third time is probably the last time. If you don't get anything, then it may be that you don't fit the criteria. And unfortunately, maybe that place is not where you would want to work anyway because it kind of shows something if they're not responding to you because mm-hmm. at least here you know if we if someone's reaching out whether that's through email or through phone we're going to reach back out saying you know at this time we either don't have a position or you know these are the qualifications and maybe you know you don't have them at the moment but that's okay you know reach back out we've even had opportunities where people maybe they've applied and had almost experience and we said, Hey, you know, if you are able to, you know, finish up that modified competency, because right now we really need someone who's competent and modified, you know, reach back out to us in the future. We, we always leave the door open like that. And that's something that, you know, I would encourage students to, to think about that if, you know, it's a place that you apply to and maybe it wasn't the right time and it wasn't the right fit, but then you're able to go get the experience somewhere else. And then you realize, you know what, I'm, I feel ready and I have the experience they're looking for. And this is a certain hospital or rehab system I want to be in. It also doesn't hurt to reach back out to those people that you have previously spoken to or interviewed with. Good advice. 
So we've spent some wonderful time talking about things I didn't intend to talk about. You just gave your intros, and I'm like, oh, I have all these questions. But I would love to hear more from you, um, Brett, specifically about what your day in the life of a medical SLP working in a rehabilitation center looks like. So, you know, acute care is, is very different from most other settings. You know, you operate, I guess so you, sh- you don't operate on a fixed schedule. You know, everything is kind of come as you go. There's so many complexities to your patients that you never know what your day is going to look like when you first start. You might think your day starts one way and it's going to be completely derailed within the first couple hours and completely changed. And, you know, some people hate that. Some people love that. And for me, I like that. I like the fact that every day is different uh, Mm -hmm. for the most part. You never know what you're walking into. Even if you have a recurring patient, you still never know what you're walking into. These are Mm -hmm. very medically complex patients. So sometimes you walk in and they're a whole different person that day. Uh, And that's when... And that's when our expertise comes in to talk about, hey, doctor, this person, you know, they were doing this, this, and this yesterday. Now they can't even do this, this, and this. Maybe we should order some sort of new imaging because there's something going on here that's not quite right. Uh, Everything's so medically fragile, and it requires a lot of critical thinking. And I think that's my main thing that I love about this setting. But, you know, as far as going back to your original question, I keep going off on tangents, uh, but we... I walk into the day. Uh, we um, every hospital is different, but for in our in our sake, I will walk in and open up our operating system. We look to see we operate with Epic, and we look to see you know what's our caseload look like today. How many new evals did we get overnight? Then uh, looking at our caseload as a as a whole, and we have little comments next to each patient to see you know who's the highest priority today. Mm-hmm. You know who are those patients that are NPO or not eating. Uh, who are the people that, you know, we absolutely need to see today or they're having a change in status and we need to reevaluate them. Or there's, you know, you know a new eval that was ordered yesterday night and it's still there. We need to cover that. Uh, and then from there, I sort of, you know, depending on what coverage we have that day, whether it just be me, Michelle, some PRNs, you know, who's going to be here that day, uh, I work on kind of creating our lists as we call it. So divvying up our caseload uh, by person, basically saying, okay, you're going to see this person, this person, this person today. I'm going to see this group of people. Uh, you're going to see this group of people. And then from that, uh, looking at my list, uh, seeing, you know, and we try to keep lists consistent. So if you've seen somebody a couple days before, or you've been seeing them routinely, you try to keep that same person ideally. So, Looking through my list, then I go through my chart review. I go through all my new evals first to see, you know, why are they here, what's going on with them, look at their history, look to see if they've ever been seen by us before, what's their dysphagia history, what's uh, what's their swallowing history, are they, you know, what's their medical complexity, to why they're in the hospital, uh, is there anything, you know, on their chest that looks suspicious, is there anything in their lab values that looks suspicious, are there aren't any medications that might be inhibiting their you know, participation today? Do they have any procedures today? Uh, are they on a diet now? Or are they not on a diet now? If they're not on a diet now, what's the reason? You know, is it a GI issue? Is it, you know, an issue with swallowing? There's a lot of things you got to go through to kind of see what, how to prioritize your patients that day. And so once I get my whole list kind of, you know, figured out and I see who I'm going to see first and who's the top priority, then I just hit the floors and, our hospital is small enough that we tend to float to, you know, all the floors. You know, there's no specific floor that one uh, speech therapist is assigned to, which, you know, bigger hospitals do have that. You know, you might have a, a speech therapist assigned to neuro. You might have a speech therapist on oncology or, you know, hospice or trauma. You know, there's a lot of different things that, you know, people could be separated to those specific units, but for, in our case, we float to everywhere. So <clears throat> going through, then, you know, looking to see who I want to see first, I go see, go to their room, talk to their nurse, see what, uh, see what they look like today, you know, see what, what's going on with them today. If I started them on a diet yesterday that, you know, I want to just make sure they're doing okay still, are they still taking their meds? Are they have any issues with, 
you know, the aspiration signs when they're eating, um, what's their oxygen status? Has it gone down, up? You know, do they look more lethargic today? You know, just kind of seeing what their status is. And then going and seeing that patient, for me, I typically see one or two patients, then document, then see one or two patients, then document. And that is that's kind of how I do it. Some people like to see all their patients in the morning then document all afternoon. It just depends on what works for you. For me, I just I forget too many details, and I right. need to see them. I need a document. And I kind of just need a mental break, breather, just to kind of sit down and, you know, focus on something else for a second versus just constant stimulation, which is the nice part about this setting, too, is it's more mm-hmm. flexible in what you can mm-hmm. do. You can kind of schedule your day how you want it. But And then throughout the day, you, I know I have my pager, and then we'll get paged for people I wasn't even expecting to see today, new evals start rolling in. And so you might have to change your whole list up. You know, if several new evals come in, they want you to see, you know, this person, this person. They need to be seen right right away. You change your whole day up, and that's kind of where the, the inconsistency comes. But, you know, that keeps it exciting, too, and, you know, it keeps you on your toes. That's for sure. But I love it when that, I work that setting. Go ahead. But, see, but then yeah, after that, that's pretty much how the whole day rolls. And just knowing, you know, when you come to a hospital, you know, documentation is a big part of it. So you have to be kind of well-versed in your documentation, knowing that does take time when you're dealing with, you know, these medically complex patients who you want to, you know, document like you know what you're talking about. And, you know, that sometimes gets wordy if you are trying to relay some complex information for people who might not understand as well. Do you work weekends at all? Holiday? We we will um, pick up weekends as needed, but typically we have PRNs uh, that work our weekend schedule. That's actually a lucky thing that we have here. I think because Mm -hmm. because we're smaller, most bigger hospitals don't have that luxury. Mm -hmm. I know during my CFY, uh, we had to work at least one week in the month. Um, so at both hospitals, I had to work at least one weekend a month. So two weekends a month, I was working, and then I'd have comp days during the week. But we try to schedule it here. It's where we don't have to work weekends if, if we don't want to. But I do think it's important. I've had to talk to, um, you know, students to say if you really want acute care, even inpatient rehab setting, you know. A, when we think about the hospital, the hospital is open seven days a week, which means we're here seven days a week. So even if we have some PRN coverage, um, if that coverage falls through, then it's up to the full-time staff to cover that. And so as as nice as it can be to know, okay, well, we have some extra help, you always in the back of your brain have to know and kind of plan that that, that can fall through. And, you know, Brett and I have to be in close communication, and you have to be with your team to know, hey, if this doesn't work out, are you here in town? Are you okay to pick up this weekend if it doesn't work out? And, you know, kind of scheduling holidays around that as well. So I think that's important to know for new clinicians that, you know, sometimes it's even a weekend phone call. You know, we've had to talk about patients. I've had to call therapists if I'm following up on a patient and I have a question. Sometimes I have to call that that therapist on the weekend and mm-hmm. you have to be open to if this is the job that you want then you can you have to be available in some in some aspect or another I'm glad you really highlight that because as we're working our way through a day in the life of the medical SLP those are some of the questions I'm asking and it's really beneficial for somebody stepping into you know the acute care rehab setting part to know exactly you know, that they are going to be, you know, being part of the team and working on weekends and holidays and what happens when they follow, fall through, then who picks up the slack? And right. that impact, that ripple effect on the team is important to know. Because Michelle and I have definitely had our weekends where we'll have a PRN call in and, you know, we're at home enjoying some breakfast and then, you know, oh, mm-hmm. I have something to work today. Um, mm-hmm. You know, usually it's not like we're going to be there for you know, a whole eight hours, hopefully, but you know, we gotta go see those pe- the patients who need to be seen. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, just a good point that Michelle highlights is that you know, you always have to be kind of quote unquote on call 
whether that be actually on call to come in or on call for somebody to come ask you a question if they need to. We're almost out of time, and I think I need to start asking these two questions at the very beginning because they're two of my very favorite questions. Um, actually, I just thought of a third one. Um, each of you, if you could briefly, what are the challenges of working in that setting? I think kind of we touched on it. A challenge can be that it sometimes is a, feels like a seven-day mm -hmm. job. Um, I think another challenge is we saw it this past year was working through a pandemic. Yeah. You know, we I would say that this past year was probably the hardest year of my career, and it, mm -hmm. it was adjusting to figuring out what to do you know, we're all kind of flying blind and um, knowing that if you stay in the medical field that this could happen again, you know, we could, something else could come up that kind of shakes us to the core and, um, you know, we really, having that team that we did, I think really helped us get through working through COVID and, you know, navigating the new road of that and what that looked like. Um, so definitely being, being aware that coming into the setting, you know, you can, you think, you think one thing and then your whole world can change yeah. about, you know, your patient population and kind mm -hmm. of how you, you, what you've been always, how you've always, you know, evaluated and treated a patient. You kind of had to throw that out the window and figure out something else. And so, um, yeah, I would say those, those are kind of the biggest challenges I can of right now so i think definitely that i think that's a that's a huge portion this whole year has been kind of a whirlwind for all of us uh but i think a couple other things kind of including that is that you know you're working with such medically fragile patients that you develop mm -hmm. these bonds and you do unfortunately see you know mm -hmm. the repercussions of that the fragility of their medical status so you see mm -hmm. patients who pass away um you see them decline after you get close to their family you know, there's always that risk of somebody, you know, not doing so great like you thought they were going to do. Uh, but also, you know, you're working in this environment with so many different disciplines that and everybody has their own specialty and everybody has all these fancy letters after their name and trying to promote yourself so you become part of the discussion. I think that's always a big thing Michelle has worked for, you know, this her whole career here. And a big part of, you know, my motivation, too, is just to make ourselves known in this giant pool of doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners and other physicians, you know, just saying, okay, this is what we do. This is how we can help. And this is what I can offer you to benefit. And these are the recommendations I offer. And, you know, this is what I would do. And this is how, this is how I specialize and this is how we're going to hopefully, you know, reach the next step together and, you know, just promoting yourself and advocating for your patients based on what you do. And that's always hard to, when you, I know when I first came in the hospital and I saw people with white coats or doctors, I was, I was terrified to ever talk to a doctor. You know, they were on this pedestal, but, you know, that goes away very quickly. And uh, you, you, you realize that you, you know, they're looking at you to get your opinion for certain things. And when you talk to them, you need to know what you're talking about, too, or else they will remember that and they won't, you know, consult you as much. So just knowing your stuff and always being on your toes to promote your specialty mm -hmm. and do it in an accurate manner that is meaningful for your patient's recovery. That's, that's I think, a big challenge for some people is to not, you know, freeze on those moments when a doctor pulls you aside and says, hey, what's going on here, 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 I need answers. And giving them answers to convince them that you know what you're talking about. That's always a hard part. Very true. Can each of you share with us a story of a patient you will never forget? It's made an impact on your career. Whew. Um, I had a patient, um, that she came in with a stroke. She had a right-sided CVA. And she not only had right hemisphere deficit, she also 
had pretty significant dysphagia. And I remember just her, her humor was intact and she at baseline, you know, her family told me just kind of how she was the, the life of the party and the comedian of the family. And she just, she loved hard and she was just kind of that light that walked into, to a room. And, you know, a lot of that was taken away by her stroke. Um, but I could still see a lot of who she was and, you know, my, my job at that time was to make sure she was safe swallowing. And she, after a small study, I had to put her on a puree diet and um, thicken liquids for safety. And it was hard for her to, um, to really understand the reasons why, but also, um, you know, she didn't like it. Like most (laughs) people on those diets don't enjoy it, but she filled up our sessions with, you know, humor and laughter And um, I got very, very close to her family. Her sister was actually um, a speech therapist. She worked in the schools Mm -hmm. for a long time. And so I just kind of felt this immediate bond. And she ended up going to a rehab facility. And a few weeks later, I was contacted by her sister that she was back in the hospital. Um, And it turned out that she... um, was diagnosed with um, cancer and they didn't know it until then. And she kind of had a quick decline. I, I had her back on my caseload and kind of did what I could for her at that moment, but she ended up transferring to an inpatient hospice unit. And Mm -hmm. I, um, I stayed in touch and after she passed, um, I actually, the family reached out to me and, they gave, they just kind of thanked me for what I had given her, um, and how I had helped, I guess, as I could, even towards the end of her life. And, um, palliative care in our field has become such a big focus. Um, I think that, you know, especially when you're young and you're coming into the field, you want to fix and you want to make it better, and you um, you sometimes forget that we need to look at these patients as a whole. And so being able to kind of offer what I could to make her as, comfort, as comfortable and to enjoy her quality of life towards the end was really important to me. Mm-hmm. And that's actually become a big passion of mine is treating our, evaluating and treating our patients towards ends of life. And I ended up going to her funeral, which was the only, actually the only patient funeral I've been to. And, um, her family just filled that room with love and they really, they, they really, and this is not to like toot my horn, but they spoke of what I had offered her towards the end. And, and it really just solidified, you know, that I'm in the career that I love and this is what I want to be able to do for people. And I, I think that sometimes, especially in the acute care setting, we have these very hard cases, these patients that are going through the worst time in their life, and then we kind of do what we can, and then we say goodbye, and we kind of don't know what happens, but it is nice to know the impact and the long impact that we can make on patients and their families. I love that story because so many speech pathologists may choose, Brett, I don't know what your story is, but so many speech pathologists are like all these great successes, but we need to reconsider, redefine what is success. And sometimes in this case, it's honoring those who are going to be passing on and making their life as comfortable as as we can in the end with the least amount of suffering so they can have their goodbyes and their final right. good memories. Mm-hmm. For sure. Very, very honoring story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so I have, I mean, I have, I have so many people to mm-hmm. think about. And you know, I, 
I do have a story very similar to Michelle's where I could talk about, you know, the palliative care side of things, but mm-hmm. um, I think because she touched base on that, I'll kind of go a different direction with more of a, you know, rehabilitation standpoint. And this was kind of in my, this was in my CFY actually, where my hospital was a big, you know, a level one trauma center. And we saw a lot of, cra- a lot of crazy things come through our doors. But one person I'll never forget was, you know, this 30 year old, uh, guy that, you know, I had seen and he had just gotten a car accident. And so he had a pretty severe brain injury and he was, you know, in the, in the hospital for probably six months or so, which is a very, very long time to be in the acute care hospital. But I remember being the first one to see him and I remember looking at him and he was nearly completely paralyzed, you know, no movement in anything besides his eyes. And you could see his mm-hmm. eyes and his eyes were so expressive and you could see him like looking at you and you could see all these things that I had never experienced before. And so I remember just talking to people about that, you know, what does that mean? Like I, I can see his eyes and he's there, like he's understanding, even mm-hmm. though he has no movement, he's not speaking, you know, there's nothing here. And so it came down the road that he actually had locked-in syndrome, and he was uh, one of those rare patients who was locked in. And it was, you know, a lot of us, you know, going and promoting that, you know, he is there. You can tell he's there to all the doctors and everybody who thought he was, you know, nearly brain dead. And so kind of working with him with physical therapy, occupational therapy, and then us working for trying to get him to eat something, trying to get him to speak again was a huge, huge goal. And like I said, this was months of seeing him. But I remember this was the first case I got so invested in as a new clinician. Like I was so excited and so invested. Every time I went to work, I requested I saw that patient because I just thought it was so interesting. And I developed this incredible bond with his family and his kids. And I remember, you know, the little strides we would make and to where he would start, you know, moving his hands a little bit and start moving his arms a little bit. And then um, even getting to the point where he was starting to try to mimic sounds and, you know, he was slowly coming out of the whole process and his brain injury was like slowly resolving. He was healing and he went from, you know, feeding tube for a long period of time um, to, we eventually got him to where he could tolerate a pureed diet with mm-hmm. you no know, thick and liquids again. Um, that was at first, and so he was eating, and that was a huge step. That was somebody we never thought would eat again. We never thought would really live. And then, you know, from there, being able to eat, then speak, and just seeing the whole progress from start mm-hmm. of nothing to ending, where he finally discharged on a regular diet, was speaking full conversations. And that always stuck with me my whole career because, you know, that that's somebody that I think people could have easily given up on mm-hmm. with how severe his deficits were and where he was in his, in his, you know, recovery. But, you know, it's, that's where our job comes into play is that you have to be able to recognize these subtle things that some people might just overlook because we're spending mm-hmm. the most, almost the most time with these patients besides for their nurses. Mm-hmm we're looking at other things that their nurses aren't. I mean, we're spending one-on-one time looking at them directly in the face, assessing their body every single day. And you know, it does that. And so a lot of it relies on us to say, you know, these are the small changes we're seeing and no, we cannot give up. We, we have to keep pushing because he's making small improvements. And so I just remember him getting to the end of it and, you know, being so thankful to all of us and his family being so mm-hmm. thankful. It was an, it's just an incredible story. I'll never, I'll never forget it. And I'm sure the colleagues I worked with would never forget it either. For those who don't know, what is locked in syndrome? So it's essentially, you know, your brain is active, but your, your body is essentially paralyzed. Uh, your body from your, neck down, even sometimes your facial movements besides your eyes, everything is paralyzed except your eyes. So you're thinking, you're understanding. It's like being in a comatose state, uh, but but you have, but you're aware. You know, you see what's going on. You just have no 
control of anything but your eyes and you're kind of, you're quote unquote locked in, you're stuck, you know, you're in this, uh, this space where it has to be incredibly scary because your brain's working, you're still yourself, but your body is completely gone. And so it's like, you know, those horror stories where we hear people who are in surgery and they wake up in surgery, but they have no ability to talk. They have no ability to communicate that they're awake. They have no ability to move. It's kind of a similar circumstance, but more from a brain injury standpoint, you know, anesthesia. Excellent stories to share why we do what we do. Final question. What words of advice would you give SLP grads, clinical fellows, or transitioning SLPs? I would say my advice is always to just keep asking questions. Even in a new setting, even if you've been here for almost 10 years like I have, I'm always asking questions and I always tell my students, you know, you're ne you, you're never not learning something. And the day that you think that you know it all is almost the day that you're doing a disservice to yourself, your patients in the field, because we're always, things are always changing and it's impossible to know it all. And so I always, always tell my students and always tell new clinicians and even parents, like, please don't ever hesitate to ask questions, collaborate. Brett and I just called a colleague the other day about a patient for some advice, and um, that would be my number one. And also to really work on building rapport with the people, not only the people you work with, but, you know, in our setting, it's so important. Brett kind of touched on this, you know, establishing good rapport with doctors, nurses, um, the dietitians, social work. It's kind of what makes the whole hospital go round. And if we are on, in good standing and have established a great relationship with those members of our team, we're going to be successful and our patients are going to be successful. Yeah. I don't think Michelle could have said it any better. I, I think, you know, the medical setting of this job is such a rarity to learn about in grad school. You know, it, a lot of it you're learning on the fly and you were, you know, you're going to be introduced to things that you don't quite have a full grasp on. And that's good. And that's means it's pushing you only people who have been, you know, working acute care for 25 years can have a pretty honest grasp of everything that's going on. Even then they're still learning. So Never, you know, a lot of speech therapists are type A and they don't ever want to be wrong and they want to show that they know everything. I know, I mean, I'm including myself here. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of kind of putting your pride aside because you, you don't know everything. You have to, you have to ask, you have to research things. You have to be open to the possibility that you could be wrong and that, you know, likely you're going to be wrong several times but that's all part of the learning process and don't just go in on your own and developing these, you know, harmful, harmful learning tactics that are incorrect or you're, you know, you're practicing this way because it's how you've been doing it your whole life when that's, that way is, you know, it's wrong. So I think, you know, that's, I think that what Michelle said is the most pivotal thing is that you just have to keep, keep striving to learn more and not just in the field of, you know, dysphagia, just, you know, the whole head, neck, everything, you know, learning about the neuroanatomy, learning about, you know, the, the function, the muscles, everything that is involved with the things that we, you know, evaluate for, because unless you know everything to a T, you don't really know how to treat it. You have to know, where the root of it is, and that's how you target. So I think just just continuing to strive to learn, you know, reading up on the latest articles, research articles, um, you know, reading even different specialty books. You know, I'm in the process of reading a book on otolaryngology just because I want to know more about the head and neck, and I want to see what is all going on and how to speak to doctors in their own terms. I think that's the biggest thing. 
that my motivation to do that is because I want to be able to use their terminology so they can think I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and so, you do. Yeah, and we do. And, you know, they always say, fake it till you make it. And that is a part of it. You, have to, you can never put your guard down. You have to act like you know what you're talking about. Um, otherwise, you know, this field is competitive and it will, you know, not allow for that. Well, thank you, Brett and Michelle. This was wonderful. Excellent. We went far longer than we normally do, but there was so much to cover and so much to just share. So thank you for coming on. Of course. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope today's conversation has created some aha moments for you and motivated you to become a better SLP continuing to connect some of those missing links between what you know and how to use that knowledge. Thank you for downloading the missing link for SLP's podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love you to subscribe, rate it, and leave a short review. Also, please share an episode with a friend. Together, we can raise awareness and help more SLPs find and connect those missing links and get the information needed to help them feel confident in their patient care every step of the way. Follow me on Instagram and join the Fresh SLP community on Facebook. Show notes are always available, so come learn more at freshslp.com. Let's make those connections. You got this.